Hello and welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. In this episode, we welcome back Jalil from Punkscapes. And in this episode, we're going to do a deeper dive on NFTs. So in the first round with Jalil, we spoke about Punkscapes and how NFTs work in a more generic way, maybe. And in this episode, we're going to dive deeper into some technical aspects of NFTs, like how to read a contract, how NFTs store data on the blockchain or in IPFS, and what is IPFS, what software is used in the creation of NFTs, and other things like ENS domains, which are very important both to the NFT crypto space in general and how they fit into Punkscapes. We talk about the potential for exploits, cheating, unfair advantages when a project is launched. And I think once you know some technical details, you're much more protected as an investor or trader or just someone who wants to participate in the NFT space for whatever reason uh, you have. It's important to have some technical knowledge before you dive in. So this episode will give you just that uh, knowledge that you need and without going into deeper stuff like actual programming and the very technical things that would only interest those who are actually programming. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Jalil and I thank him again for being so generous with his time and explaining to us all these interesting pieces of information. Hi Jalil, welcome again to Mastermind.fm round two. The first episode was well received, so also driven by my interest in the technical part of NFTs and Punkscape. Is it Punkscape or Punkscapes? Because I always say scapes. Right. I don't even know myself, uh, to be honest. Um, the website is Punkscape. Uh, but yeah. if you if you talk about the entire collection, then we all say scapes. Yeah, Punkscapes. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I guess this is going to be a deeper dive on the tech stuff that we mentioned in the last episode. So the first question I have, building on what we discussed last time, you have the idea for a project. Where do you start from? Assuming you have the skills, because if you don't, you might partner with someone else. But what are the essential ingredients for building an NFT project nowadays? When I started, I, I basically, we, um, by the way, thank you for having me on again. It was uh, so much fun last time. And yeah, um, yeah long time no here. <laughs> A few days later. Um, awesome. It basically started uh, with my with this, my, my friend Jack Butcher. Um, we were chatting back and forth on Discord. And then just opened a design app, uh, Figma, and mm -hmm. uh, started messing around with what this could look like. Yeah, just like 24 by 24 pixel uh, background for punks. That that was the like the first test okay. that um, that we dabbled with, and and that's how it started. Yeah. So, so just playing so, with the art mm -hmm. for yeah. graphics. It's typical to use Figma. I do like to coming from the UI design, a web development kind of world. Figma is like a really cool tool to use, I think, uh, especially when you want to show other people what you work on. So yeah, I use that a lot. But for the scapes, actually, like after the first few hours of messing around, I moved to an iPad because it's just much nicer to be able to use a pen and just draw the pixel art. And for that, there's this tool called Affinity Designer. It's basically like a Adobe Illustrator 
tool. Um, it does vector and raster images. That's how I started creating the, the initial artwork for the punkscapes. So did you just create all the graphics from scratch or were you using some models and then you pixelize them or customize ah, them? Yeah, I did try once to like pixelate a Mars landscape and that just didn't work at all because you need the, a much more like when you pixelate an image, you have lots of different colors and fades, etc. And it doesn't really, it doesn't look like good pixel art. So what I did then, I, I mean, I took reference photos that I liked and then I just drew them by hand and made them much more graphic than they would have been if I just pixelated an image. One funny technique though, um, so there's one trait, the, the tempo, and that one I actually, like that was the first time I, I tried to do it. I kind of messed it up and then I took an actual reference photo and drew on top of it um, until I was happy with it. Um, that actually worked quite well as well. So, Like tracing. Basically tracing, tracing the thing and then over time abstracting it more and more into like a proper pixel art thing. But that from a process perspective worked uh, really well. All the other ones I had like the image on a second screen or something and just drew however I wanted. But for the tempo, I, I did it that way and that helped a lot with the tempo. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I think we're off to a good start like that, like describing some generic uh, software like Figma. I know everybody uses Figma. We use it as well for our software. And then maybe once as we're going along, we take a bit of a dive into specific things for Punkscapes. So I think that's the line we could take here. Um, so, okay, graphics. And of course, a big part of the project is the apps. We had the hackathon for Rarity, and now you're building some other things. To build on this initial idea of the of the scapes, so there's animations, there's the background creator. I mean, the for the profiles. So tell us more about that. Yeah, the, I mean the punkscapes themselves, them being these tiny images. Um, for me, there's more them having these metadata attributes and traits. They communicate an idea just as much as they are art themselves, and you can base new things on that idea. Um, so for the animations, for example. I mean, those are really close to the actual punkscapes and maybe the soundscapes that um, our community member uh, BXB is working on is constantly sharing updates as well in the Discord. You can basically yeah, map these traits in the NFT um, to something entirely different in that case, be it music. And th that's, I think, very interesting. Yeah, it doesn't really like based on those traits, you can have something else that and map them to them and create something entirely new. And I mean, the same goes like I have in the back of my mind this idea of doing uh, the punkscapes in multiple different contexts. I mean, the 24 by 72 pixels is one of them, but the traits could just as well be rendered in a higher density pixel artwork or a photorealistic um, 3D rendering or a voxel uh, kind of landscape that you can, I don't know, um, walk through in your browser with like 3D effects and stuff. So there's many ways one could reinterpret the the metadata of the NFTs themselves. And I think that's interesting to explore. Most projects that I see in the space, um, basically they release the NFT and then they, I don't know, half a year later, they release a second one um, and, and then a third one or whatever. And I kind of like the idea of building stuff based on and on top of the existing metadata and traits and um, re reimagine the art in a way in different contexts. And in that sense, the, the initial art would always 
in my mind, be like the key to unlock all these different things. So for the music, for the animations, for a future higher fidelity thing, maybe, they would all be tied together by the token uh, metadata of the initial. I, I like the idea also because by building on something that's existing, you kind of involve the community much more, right? I can just go in at any time, look at the traits and think of an idea, start working on it. If you're just working on these iterative, not iterative, like new drops every six months that you mentioned, then it's kind of up to the founder and the team behind the project to come up with the next airdrop, basically. So I prefer this model. But I think we, we jumped a bit into the deep end. We, you keep mentioning the size of the punkscapes. When uh, somebody who's buying a scape right now, he just goes to OpenSea, there's this banner that he sees, and he might assume that's an image and that's what everything is. Explain what exactly creates that banner, what's behind the banner. There's the traits, and then how do we go from traits to that nice image that we see and where is it stored, for example? Okay, maybe we can dive in on techni technical level a, a little bit. When you go um, on OpenSea, um, for example, um, just like OpenSea is basically a front end to the blockchain, yeah? a way to display the data that is actually on chain or linked from chain. And uh, so if you go to a Punkscape token, any, on the sidebar on the left, you will see a section called details or properties or something like that. If you open this, you will see all the traits and attributes of that particular Punkscape. And how OpenSea sees that, actually, let me pull one up. Give me a second. Yeah, I'm, I'm on it. And just for anyone listening, you have to search for Punkscapes with the plural Punkscapes on OpenSea. Yeah, there's a couple of fake, fake collections. Yeah. Okay, so um, when we open, yes, on the left, we have the sidebar, description, properties, etc. If we open that up, these things like atmosphere, dusk, I see here right now, celestial, blue planet, etc. These things are defined by the token metadata. And the metadata is in this NFT standard that is most widely used called um, ERC721, is a JSON file that contains all of this data. Actually, like even the name of the token, the link to the image for the token, and all of these uh, properties. And there is many different ways of de um, like defining the properties. I mean, the simplest is just to have a key um, and a value. Um, so the key here, for example, would be atmosphere, and the value would be um, a dusk or dawn or whatever. And so for anyone who wants to follow along on the more technical side, how would they access this JSON file? Yes, um, that's a good question. So on OpenSea again, if you go all the way down in the sidebar, there is a details tab. And in there, there is a contract address um, that is a link. And if you click on it, it will open the contract on Etherscan. And Etherscan is yet another front end to the blockchain. So neither of these are the blockchain. They're just ways to basically display the data. But what we can see here on Etherscan is um, the smart contract and all the, we can look at the functions that the smart contract exposes. We can even interact with the smart contract through our browser with Etherscan and we can also read the code. Most interestingly for, for this now though, if we, if there's a tab um, called contract and in there we have three different uh, sections, code, read contract and write contract. 
If you go to read contract, you can see all of the functions that the smart contract exposes. And in the ERC721 NFT token standard, every one of these smart contracts has to implement a bunch of these methods. And the one that we are looking for is called token URI. It's the second to last one for the Punkscapes. Um, and if you click on that, you'll see an input, which is basically the token ID, and then you and a query button, so you can query one. So if I put one here, for example, and click query, this is now pulling this data from chain. So the smart contract generates a link that we see here now returned. And this link is hosting the metadata uh, for this particular token. So if I put token ID one, I get a long string. This is actually a hash of the entire collection um, data. And then slash one slash metadata dot JSON. And if you look the, at the first few characters, IPFS colon forward slash forward slash, that is the protocol that this link is using. So when you're browsing um, a website, you're using uh, HTTPS. And this is another protocol. It's an open network called interplanetary file storage. And with a normal browser, you won't be able to, to look at it. But there's multiple gateways, we, we call them, that you can use to look at this data. So for this particular one, and maybe we can add these links uh, in the show notes, huh? you have to basically copy that thing, copy the string. And um, what you're, the one gateway that many people use is basically called ipfs.io forward slash. And now you have to define um, the, the IPFS version. Basically, you just say IPFS. And then again, forward slash. And then you paste in this uh, hash slash token ID slash metadata dot JSON. And if you open that up, you will see a the JSON file, which, for example, OpenSea pulls and uses to display the these properties that we saw on OpenSea for, for this particular token. So I don't know, were you, were you able to follow I, this? I managed, yeah, I, I was able. So for anyone listening, it's ipfs.io forward slash ipfs. And then basically the, you take the URL we found on OpenSea and anything you copy paste everything that's that comes with, uh, after the IPFS colon uh, double slash, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, not from OpenSea, from, <laughs> from, from Etherscan. From Etherscan, so, yeah. Yeah. So what is interesting about this, this is basically a folder structure that we have right here. So if you remove the forward slash metadata.json from the end, to say this content hash slash one, you will see the folder for this particular uh, token for the token one, you will see a metadata.json file, which we just looked at, and you'll also see an image.png. If you click on that image, that's the image for the Punkscape that also opens polls and displays. Should we talk a little bit about about this IPFS thing because it's like one of the most common and central ways to, for NFT for projects sure. to yeah. host? Um, so what's really interesting about our normal file system on our PCs? They're just basically nested trees of uh, files, right? And we identify a file by the, their location in the tree structure. So any any file would be located somewhere in our file system. And yeah, we identify it by, by their path, basically. And on IPFS, you identify files not by this path, but by the hash of the content. So they use a hashing function. I think they use a SHA-256, which takes any kind of input 
and returns a fixed length string numeric, uh, alphanumeric string jumbled together um, that identifies this particular file. Basically, you can do that to any file. So now you don't identify files by their path. You identify them by their content. And even if you were to change this one tiny thing within that file content, basically, if you have a metadata.json file, for example, if you just change uh, one little word in, in one of the traits, the hash for this token would be entirely different. And the main hash that we see here in our link is the hash of the entire collection of all 10,000 images and metadata files together. And yeah, so even in that, in this entire like 10,000 item set, if we were to change only one little character, this hash that we use to identify the collection would be, would be completely different and uh, unrecognizable. And this is what makes IPFS unique. Every file and every folder we can identify with these hashes um, and we can be sure if we know the hash to a file that it hasn't been tampered with. It must always stay the same because if we were to change um, the content of the file, then the hash would be different. Um, so just to take sense? an example, yeah, makes a lot of sense. To take an example, that's a question I asked a couple of days ago, which you replied to. In another project, the founder decided to change the metadata for the images just to change the rankings. So in that case, if I'm understanding correctly, the hash would also change at that point. Yes, that's correct. If we go back a little bit again, maybe to the CryptoPunk example, they existed before IPFS existed, I think. I'm actually not 100% sure, but they didn't use, I mean, they didn't even have the concept of linking out to individual token IDs in, in their contract. The ERC721 token standard that everybody uses now is based on the CryptoPunk smart contract that Lava Labs created, but it functions a little bit differently. They, they improved the standard, uh, but it was like the, the idea was based on, on that one. Anyway, what they did to secure the trust in the punk images never changing is they added a hash of the, so there's an image file that contains 100 times 100 punks, the 10,000 punks, and they included a hash of that image in the smart contract. So why not just include the entire image? Storage on chain is very, very expensive. So you can't just save an entire image on chain. But the beauty about hashes is, as I mentioned, it's a fixed algorithm that you can use to, and, and you run any kind of data through it. If you put the same data in, it will always produce the same hash. So people can download the punks image and check the hash of the punk image if they run it through a hashing function. And they can verify that the punk image that they have is exactly the same one that Larva Labs put in the smart contract when the smart contract was deployed in 2017 or whatever. And that's how basically trustlessly anybody can verify that, yes, indeed, they do have the right uh, image file. And basically, this is the same technique that we now use in a little bit more sophisticated way. Um, I think Lava Labs just hosted the image file on GitHub or something, and everybody can download it from there. And this IPFS network is really like an open network. Anybody can participate in it and spin up a server that also serves these files. And um, so anybody who's, for example, if you buy an NFT, it's good practice to find the IPFS collection of your NFT and pin it. You can pay services. Uh, one very common one is Pinata, uh, pinata.cloud, actually. And uh, you can create an account. And I think 
the first gigabyte or something like that is even on them. So, so it doesn't even cost anything um, to start with. But you can basically pin a collection or your token ID, token image uh, hash of an NFT project that you're interested in and be sure that it stays up and stays the same, basically. So this is something that the founder would do or each individual holder? I mean, the founder can do it, but if the founder decided to remove the file from the... So that is important to understand. With IPFS, it's not like on-chain, for example, you add something, you can never remove it. On IPFS, um, people have to continue to, they call it pinning the files. Whenever, like when, when nobody's interested anymore in the file, basically nobody is pinning it anymore, then it's gone from the network. So that's the danger there. So I personally, I think you shouldn't completely rely on the founder keeping it on IPFS forever. When you buy an NFT, if, if it's special to you, there's it's not really difficult to, to like find this hash and pin it and make sure that um, it stays online. Of course, every founder is incentivized to, to do it, but the more uh, decentralized way, obviously, is, is for everybody and to, to, to so do it themselves. If, yeah, if I buy a punkscape and I pin it, would I be contributing to the pinning of the whole project? In a way, yes, yes, yeah. Especially, I mean, there's levels to this. So you could actually rent a server for like $5 a month and install IPFS on it and run your own IPFS node and choose which files you want to pin. And that would be the most decentralized way to do it, I guess. Or you use a service like Pinata that does it for you, basically. All right, that's that's interesting. I'll have to read a bit more about Pinata and this whole pinning concept. Yeah, I mean, the, the most important piece is that you can identify files by their hash and know that this is always going to stay the same. And this is what is so important for all of us in the NFT. Yeah, space, which, right? which leads me to the other question I had. So in the case of CryptoPunks, they aren't able to upgrade kind of their, their original contract to move to IPFS. I mean, anybody and probably the punk image is on IPFS. I'm sure somebody pinned it there. But no, the contract, they added the this hash of the initial punk image as a constant into the contract. So of course, you could write a contract where you could update this hash over time, in which case you could still go back over time if you look at the blockchain and see each version of it. That's maybe interesting to dive a little bit into a bit later, because that's what I'm doing right now still for the punkscapes. They're not yet uh, locked, also important for people uh, to understand. It it still has the functionality for me to add something to it, but anybody could go back and look at each version. Anyway, so for the for the in the case of the of Lava Labs and the CryptoPunks contract, it's a constant string which has been set in deployment. It's just hard coded into the code. Actually, yeah, we can we can also just uh, check it out on EtherScan. Yeah, I'm I'm looking up the CryptoPunks contract. Uh, the contract, if you go on EtherScan, it's called I think CryptoPunks Market in the in the code. One interesting note, maybe. So on EtherScan, there's always two views of the same contract. One is called the token tracker, and one is called the contract. And you can only uh, read through the code in the contract view, not in the token token tracker view. But yeah, there's the verified uh, contract, and they have on line nine of the CryptoPunks smart contract, there is this string public image hash, and then the hash is AC39 blah, 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 blah and ends with 21B, and that is always going to stay that. Yeah, they can never... So for anyone it. looking on EtherScan, looking for the CryptoPunks contract, they should type CryptoPunks? 
and uh, search. And then you find a number of tokens, ERC20, ERC721 addresses. So which one should we be looking at for the contract specifically? If you just type CryptoPunks in the search, they have like this uh, dropdown that that opens up and you can uh, immediately see there's one verified CryptoPunk with a C and a dot. And on the right, there's a, a blue check mark. Yes, it's listed under ERC20, which is interesting. So the ERC20 token is for fungible tokens, right? You can uh, divide um, the tokens, et cetera, et cetera. And the CryptoPunks, contract, they build the CryptoPunks contract based on ERC-20, and they conformed to all the transfer methods and events that you normally find in an ERC-20 contract. But they added to it um, so that it would keep track of individual tokens and make them non-divisible, basically, and move uh, individual tokens around. But yeah, so it's listed here as an ERC-20 token, and it's the one that is uh, verified with, um, it also has a little CryptoPunk icon and yeah, so if you click on that, then you get to the token tracker page and then you click on contract and then you can go and check out the code. All right. I made it till the image hash. Hopefully other listeners more intelligent than me will have no problem either. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. That's, that's yeah, cool. So, yeah, yeah that, that's in there and that's, that's going to be in there forever. And um for the one-day punks, for example, my, my first one, I did it basically uh, in a very similar way. I did it on contract deployment. So when the contract is initially constructed, it set this this image ha or the collection hash for all the 10,000 uh, one-day punks. And that's also never changeable. I don't have a function to update it basically in, in that contract, similar to the, to the CryptoPunks market. All right, so coming to the domains aspect of the project. Now, I don't know much. Just let me start from what I know. I know that there are the .com and the traditional domains, which are centralized. And then there's the ENS domains, which I believe have an extension of ETH only or not, I'm not sure. And I bought one myself and then immediately regretted it because I kind of said I just doxed myself, right? <laughs> because it's like <laughs> my name. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so that's all I know. And after that, I didn't do anything because I was kind of scared about doxing myself further. And I didn't know if that would come and bite me in the ass later on. So I did get the airdrop, thankfully. So I got some money <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, I think it was a month ago. And so that's all I know. Okay. Yeah, sure. When I, I researched some of these uh, domain name protocols um, before Punkscapes, and I think it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. I mean, it's just, I think we touched last time, right? It's an important piece of infrastructure to be able to identify other people or other We're entities. We're talking about the addresses. Yes, yes. Although yes. like what, as, as I just said, I feel it's a bit already like the once you know somebody's address, you can see all his transactions if he's of using course. just one wallet. But on top of that, if he just puts his name dot eth, you're you know like it's potentially a security threat, no, for that person if he yeah, has a lot of money in the in the the account or in the wallet. Stuff yes, like yes, I agree. I mean, yes, of course, every transaction on the blockchain is open for anybody to see. Any holdings of a wallet is open. Uh, th these are all open. Anybody can see. So if you have a domain name that people can use to identify 
you personally. I mean, you can have any kind of domain name, right? You could also be, I don't know, bringer of joy dot <laughs> um, I guess my uh, my conflict is I like I like being open and not being anonymous. It's just my yeah, myself my, too. Yeah. yeah. So when you do that, and then you're attaching the financial aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So that gives, I don't actually mind people seeing what I own and the transactions I'm doing, but it exposes further risks, say for my family, which I don't want to assume, like, because I cannot really go back from that. Once, once it's out there, that's it. I, I completely um, agree. And for me too, that was a weird feeling, to be honest with. On the other hand, if everybody does it, then kind of we're all unsafe then. <laughs> <laughs> True. But True. what we're seeing is that a lot of people are hiding behind a pseudonym and then they become famous for that under that pseudonym. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know. Like that's, that's my conflict between using my own name, which is cool. I don't need to. Yeah send the long address to people i can it's a cool to, to it's cool to own your domain i've done it yes. for the dot com for i was lucky i started early with dot coms and managed to grab my name so i'm aware of how important a domain is in your mm. online identity yeah i mean i don't really have a strong opinion about using your actual identity and tying your actual identity to your domain name or not. I think it's everybody's own preference and that's completely fine. Independent of that though, I think that it's a, a very important piece of technology, regardless of what you attach to domains. One, for example, very, I think, fascinating, exciting thing about ENS is you can add similar to how in DNS you have, uh, you can add subdomains to your domain. So you could have Similar to how we have mail.google.com, for example, and drive.google.com. In ENS, um, if somebody, I don't know, for example, has, let's say BMW has BMW.eth, every single car that they produce could have an identifier, one, two, three, four, five, .bmw.eth. And your ownership of the car could be represented by the subdomain of BMW. So you can that being the the bmw.eth and any subdomain being an nft opens really interesting opportunities for example like even that to track ownership and stuff and to do that not with like some random long identifier but with something tangible yeah i i think that will be just a very important piece of this future infrastructure maybe um localities and cities etc they will have these domain names and then different places and things that you can interact with in the, in the city, uh, cars that you can rent, whatever, have these domain names attached and they're being passed around the ownership or um, the control of it. And all of that is being, being tracked on the blockchain. That's, I think, a very interesting and important piece of the puzzle for actual usage of, uh, of the blockchain, make it much more user-friendly. While we're talking about this, I become more and more aware about how much stake we're putting on it Ethereum's success, right? Because yes. all these things, including yes. our NFTs, are built on Ethereum. On Ethereum, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but I'm a, I, I'm a personally, I'm a big Ethereum believer, but of course, you never know. It's a permissionless open protocol; anybody can take part. So, um, I think it will live beyond any person that's a part of it right now or founded it or whatever. 
inestimable with these. So there's this notion of crypto domains being uncensorable, which is maybe too hard. Like you can uncensorable, nothing is really uncensorable. Um, but uh, it's it's harder to take them away from you because they're part of this open network and the smart contracts that control these just don't expose the function to take them back. So when you own one, you really do own one. And uh, that's not the case necessarily for domain names in the DNS system, and the traditional uh, uh, internet system that we use. So that's a very interesting prospect of ha tracking ownership of domain names and the importance of them on the blockchain. So uh, that's another thing that's, I think, really exciting. Now, you have a lot of similar features with the .eth names or the ENS names that you have to DNS names. So um, in DNS, you can add records other than uh, the domain itself to attach it to the domain that other people can query. Like, for example, one thing that you would query is, does this um, domain expose, like, uh, can it receive emails, for example? Yeah, and that's uh, a certain DNS uh, record, MX record. And there's many other records that you could add, like a text record to verify some other thing. And with ENS, we can basically do the same thing. And what's so fascinating about that is um, you suddenly, there's also, again, consensus around how we formulate, for example, linking to our Twitter account or linking to our website. And all of that is being done via these text records that you can attach to the NFT that you own, the domain that you own. Yeah, that just opens a lot of very interesting features that, yeah, again, permissionlessly can be queried and displayed, etc. Um, actually, one personal thing that I find really interesting, would like to explore, is adding the idea of skills and competencies to ENS domains and find a way for other people to attest to them. Um, permission. So I see, hey, yeah, you have the skill in tech so-and-so, I attest to that. And that's all being tracked on, on the ENS domain. And that then forms like your decentralized kind of LinkedIn skills profile sort of, uh, sort of thing. Those things I think are super interesting. And these are uh, harder to take away, harder to censor, you own them. And so how has all this thinking been implemented in Punkscapes? I mean, the Punkscapes being the sort of banner profile uh, profile picture for Punks initially, and now many others use it as well. Um, the idea was to integrate ENS domains of the people that buy the Punkscapes to fill out an entire profile. So if somebody has an um, .if domain, ENS domain, actually, like one quick note about that. ENS supports importing DNS names. So the normal IP system, domain name system that we use on the internet, DNS, we can you can import those domains, prove ownership of them, import them to the ENS network, and then manage them just like any other .eth name. So you can add text records, etc. So you can set it up in a way, for example, if I owned, let's say, jaleel.com, which I don't, uh, but if I did, I could import it to ENS and have people uh, like send me Bitcoin to my Bitcoin address via ENS, which uh, uh, is very cool, I think. So it kind of ties the, uh, these projects together in a way or makes them compatible. And that's like, if you compare ENS to other crypto domain protocols, most of them or the ones that I checked out uh, are not compatible with DNS in a way that ENS is and tries to be. And I think that's a, a crucial 
uh, a piece of the puzzle to make these go mainstream uh, down the road. And just how ENS uh, in their communication and in their techs, how they have set it up in regards to integration with DNS, I think is is very key and they handle it extremely, extremely well. Back to the, the Punkscapes and the CryptoPunks. So um, I can check when somebody buys a Punkscape, do they own a CryptoPunk? And I can check, do they own a .eth domain? And when they do, I tie all of these together on the Punkscape website to, without ever asking them, stick together a profile that is their CryptoPunk, their .eth domain, and their Punkscape if they have multiple. And uh, what's so cool about that, in the ENS system, you can add your Twitter handle, you can add your email address, you can add your website, etc., to your .eth domain. And suddenly, without me, without anybody having to fill in like their Twitter handle on, on the Punkscape website, I can just display all of this data permissionlessly from the blockchain. And it kind of underlines the idea of the Web3 identity being in such stark contrast to the Web2 identity, where you have the Instagram silo and then the Twitter silo and the Facebook silo. And in every platform, you basically have to re, like, fill out your profile. In the Web3 world, you have your ENS profile and all the data that you want to have, your avatar, your, your header image, et cetera, et cetera. And then you log into the different websites and they can all just pull it and fill out your profile and it's there. Or even create a profile for you and you've never visited the website before. So there's... Uh, like I have a profile for every single CryptoPunk and there's 10,000 CryptoPunks and most of them have never w visited Punkscapes. But if they own an ENS domain and own a CryptoPunk, they get a profile on Punkscapes automatically. And I think that's just really cool and highlights like the, the possibilities uh, with, with these domain names. Yeah, well, that's that's really amazing. I wasn't aware of the possibilities there. If there's something about this project apart from the community, it's about how much it can teach us, but also like, to me, it's all of all these rabbit holes that once I learn about, oh, you're doing a lot of stuff that kind of leads me to learn further. And this is what I love about this project. That every yeah, time I you. visit the Discord or see the new feature, I want to learn. And it opens my eyes to something else in crypto, which is really awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. All right. I hope there's a couple more things that, uh, like for example, the. The, we have an on-chain marketplace uh, that we don't have an interface yet for it, but eventually you'll be able to trade them without OpenSea at all, right? On on the on the Is smart contract. the crypto banks? Yes, uh, very inspired by it. So I think that's just really cool, and more projects should do it. And that will be an entirely uh, different rabbit hole, like to to go into as well. Yeah, so. And Lovely. that would skip awesome. the the fees, secondary yes. fees. So the secondary fees that OpenSea takes. Um, and the stuff that we have for the community vault and the project itself, that's still in there on that contract as well. By the way, when I transfer one-to-one -one from MetaMask to MetaMask to another wallet, uh -huh. that doesn't take any... Just transfer the token. Yeah. Like if I donate it yes, no, to that's... someone or sell it. Yeah, no, no. Even, I, I don't want to don't want to make it too long again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so uh, actually, there is, I don't know of a single NFT that enforces secondary selfies because if you wanted to enforce it you'd have to do it on the token transfer but to enforce a fee on token transfer is crazy because what happens if you i don't know move your funds to a new wallet because your old one maybe got compromised and you want to be sure 
or you want to gift it to your children or whatever, then you wouldn't incur secondary sale fees on that. So every NFT, it's free to transfer. And a sale is also just a transfer. On the OpenSea storefront smart contract, when you want to trade your um, NFT on OpenSea, the first thing that you have to do for the collection is approve the token. And that's something that many people get confused about for the, and at the first time. I remember my first time, I was also confused. Like, well, I have to, I have to pay $150 just to be able to then trade this? That's ridiculous. But yes, uh, so you have to approve the contract, the smart contract. That's actually something that the token smart contract implements. So nobody can manage your token other than you. But when you approve another address, be it a smart contract or another private address, that they can move it around, then they can do it uh, for you. So what happens when you buy something on OpenSea, these 2.5% that they take, and whatever revenue secondary sales share um, the project has defined on OpenSea, that's just that the OpenSea contract uses that information and sends, uh, like, takes, takes, the, takes the cut. But one could create another uh, storefront, basically, and, and contract that trades these assets that you could approve transferring. They could just ignore your setting of, hey, I want the revenue share to be 2%, 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever. They can just ignore it and do a transfer for free. So that part is just respecting so the, the wish in a way. Uh, it's it's, it's not around, enforced. Right. Yeah. yeah. Around royalties and perpetuity, there's a lot of hype about that being one of the key wins of nfts in general yes and it's just something that is respected by every platform but you could create a platform that doesn't respect it and just does it for free so that's definitely possible so for example those swap platforms where people can swap swap tokens what, yes what? Yeah. nft i don't know what was the name i think i i, I once one had one that's pseudo pseudo swap is it that of them, yeah. there's yeah. another one which i think is more famous from what I've seen in the Discord groups when people uh -huh. start making the offers within Discord and then they accept the trade. They use this, I don't know, Snifty Trader. I don't know. So in that case, I guess there's no secondary. Yeah, I've never tried it, but good point. Yeah, that's probably the case. Yeah. Definitely if you don't trade ETH. So <laughs> you can <laughs> fractionalize the other side. Um, yeah. Good point. Right. So it's just a consensus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. All right. So kind of retracing our steps, we start from OpenSea. Then we went to Etherscan to look at the contract and we moved on to IPFS and we were talking about the image. So we have the image and the metadata. So the metadata will never change. And the image, what does that represent? Is it just a friendly image that the platforms can use, or is it an important aspect? I mean, of course, it's an important aspect of any collection or most NFT collections. And okay, if we go back to the IPFS hosted metadata JSON file that we looked at earlier, we can see the different elements within that object, JSON object, um, that are defined in this metadata file. So for example, the name, the one that I'm looking at is uh, punkscape number one, and then it has a description. And then we see again, image colon uh, IPFS colon forward slash forward slash, and then the hash, content hash of that particular image. So what's interesting, if we take that 
and look at it on IPFS again. So IPFS.io slash IPFS slash that hash that was in the uh, metadata, we see this particular image, which we also see if we check the collection, the entire collection for its slash um, one, and then see the folder as we did previously on IPFS for the particular token that contains both the metadata and the image file. And you can look at the image file by going to the collection hash slash one slash image PNG or the hash of the image itself. So there we can see again that we identify the, the, the files uh, by their, by their content hash, basically. It's the same thing. Yeah. For me, um, with the punkscapes, the only way I can update anything in the collection is to update the hash of the entire collection. So if I don't change the image, the hash of the image would stay the same if I update, for example, a name of a trait. So one thing that we've done already uh, since uh, the conception of the project is there was one particular trait that we weren't, I personally had an oversight. I, I added a name that is a little bit uh, problematic. If you go and look for it, you'll find out. <laughs> I, I don't want to <laughs> say too much. A bit um, of a quest here. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a quest. Yes, exactly. So maybe a, no a note on that. So you have to be super careful because you're basically pushing stuff to the blockchain and you can never take it back with naming things in ways where other companies or trademark, uh, intellectual property, et cetera, um, where you don't infringe on that. Or, I mean, it's difficult. What will happen if you if you do? Yeah, They can basically, for example, with OpenSea, they can file a DMCA and take down the entire collection. So one has to be super careful about that. And that's why I'm, in a way, grateful for this entire project was like a founder-led initiative from the start in the beginning. Um, so, And all the people that were buying into it basically trusted me with this. Um, so I felt comfortable in the beginning not to freeze and make immutable the token metadata. 95, 90, uh, most projects don't have frozen metadata, which is most often, and uh, I might be a little bit of a hypocrite on this in this regard. <laughs> I think um, most often it's, it's um, not done in a very clean manner. And they can even change the data for the tokens without touching the blockchain at all, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. So they, they host all the data, not on IPFS, where everything is identified by, by Tash. Uh, they, they just host it on their personal server or even just like Google Cloud or whatever. And they can change it there whenever they want to, which is really problematic for multiple reasons. Maybe we can dive into uh, what so that means, for example. A question if, leading on to yeah. that. If you're minting a new project, yes. you would have access to the contract already before minting to check the stuff? Most of the time. So there, I've seen instances where the contract wasn't verified until five minutes before mint. Um, what does it mean, verified? FOMO hits, verified. Oh, uh, so when you deploy a smart contract on the blockchain, it's all jumbled up. You can't see the, because it's compiled to like bytecode that is executed by the nodes. And the only way, uh, like Etherscan has a service, they you provide Etherscan, the, the site that we just looked at as the developer, provided with the exact data that you deployed the smart contract with, and then they can reconstruct and verify that, and you provide them the source code for your contract, and then they reconstruct and verify that, yes, indeed, it co compiles to the same bytecode. And then they say, okay, it's a verified contract code, and they display, they show the code on the website. I um, see, so the human-friendly version is provided by the developers, not something automatic that we can see when we look at the blockchain. 
Yes. I mean, there's initiatives and people that try to like decompile the bytecode, but um, very often it's just all messed up and jumbled up and doesn't really make sense. Because you don't really have variable names, for example, and stuff like that anymore in a decompiled set. Um, so the only way, and every bigger project has a verified contract, and it's really important for people that want to mint, for example, to be able to, to go through the code and see the code and make sure that it's not doing anything funky. I haven't seen like in, in DeFi, you see audited by so-and-so company, right? In NFTs, I haven't seen it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, true. There's maybe too little of that. It's just such a fast-paced environment and there's so many projects launching. And I think not many people really care. And then on the other hand, I mean, if something is super funky, normally like it comes out somehow. And then, I mean, this is not like a decentralized exchange in DeFi. The trust factor is, I think, even more important uh, in, in that environment. Yeah, than I came across yeah. an example yesterday where this new project was generating very high fees for minting. And somebody called them out on Twitter saying like, the code is horrible. They're doing some basic mistakes. Not Nothing malicious, I guess, but yeah, yeah. I've seen that a couple of times too. Yeah, for example, assigning the token IDs initially to uh, when you mint. For example, uh, the token randomization aspects. More and more collections want to do it because it removes a layer of trust. Many projects mess that step up and have some weird looping mechanisms that, when they test it, they only ever mint like they have a collection of ten thousand items, and maybe they mint in their tests, they mint 20 or 30 or something. Uh, so they never get to experience the problem when their code um, just goes through the entire set and tries to find empty slots um, just by looping over the token IDs. I've seen a project that basically did that. So coming closer to the final, to the remaining, I don't know, 1000 tokens, it gets really, really difficult to find um, and very gas intensive and expensive to, to find uh, free token IDs to give to users. So yeah, that's so this number, like we were looking at the token ID number one, would you have assigned this image to ID number one beforehand? Algorithm that generated them, um, just assigned, assigned the token ID, yeah. Um, you would have seen it before you launch? Yes, I, of course. Before, before I launch, I can look at all the metadata files and image files and uh, double check, yeah, whether I like it or not. <laughs> and as a developer, you do, if you have all these files, you have 10,000 metadata files, JSON files, and 10,000 images, of course, you can go and rearrange things, right? And this is one of the, if I may be entirely honest, I think many, many projects are set up in a way that enable the developers to scam the people that mint the project for this particular reason. They don't publish the hash of the collection before they start the sales process. The problem with that is while they are selling, they can mint themselves on secondary addresses um, and just mint and mint and mint and choose the tokens that they got, whatever it is. And often these projects, when they sell out even, they have days of a gap until they reveal the actual metadata for the token. So that gives them like even sometimes an entire week or something where they can just rearrange this metadata collection and say, okay, I have on this secondary wallet, I have these five tokens and on this secondary wallet, and they all look like legit 
because you don't know who's behind the wallet, right? They don't look like legit, uh, uh, like scammers. They look like normal, hey, I'm new to NFTs and this is the first time I'm buying kind of thing. And they just rearrange their collection to give the rare tokens to themselves. And this, I think, is very, very problematic. And that's something that I really tried uh, with my smart contracts to make sure that nobody could accuse me basically of that on the code level, if they go through the code and anybody would agree that I, I couldn't have done that. Yeah, so if you don't publish the hash of the entire collection before you start the sale, then then you're basically prone to this exploit. So, so are we saying that any project that has a reveal that happens later, susceptible to this exploit? And no, uh, any project that, that can't prove that they uh, didn't mess with uh, token IDs and metadata assignment. So it's complex and there's no really perfect solution. When you publish the metadata upfront before this, uh, the sellout, then people can come and in various ways try to snipe the rare token IDs. So when they know which token ID is rare, then there's various ways, even with token randomization and stuff, um, there's various ways that people can go and, and try to, while minting, hit the, these rare tokens. So the most famous uh, instance of that is actually also uh, by the creators of the CryptoPunks when they um, they launched a second project called the Mebits, and somebody got access to the entire collection of uh, metadata files and wrote a little script to find the rare token IDs and then wrote a custom smart contract that would mint a Mebit and then cancel the transaction while the transaction is still being computed in, in memory pool, we call it. Uh, it's not yet in a block. It's still being evaluated, basically. And when they see, oh, it's not minting the token that I actually want, I reroll, basically, and do it again. And with that, I think they spent, I don't know, $20,000 in gas fees to get like three or something rare tokens. And then instantly they were able to sell it for like $1 million or $800,000 or something. So, um, I mean, that kind of stuff only works with really valuable collections, but it still proves the point. If you publish the token metadata beforehand, then you're prone to these kinds of exploits. So I think the best way to go about it is to publish only the hash of the entire metadata collection before the sale. And then you do the entire sale. And then afterwards, and this is still, so during this entire time, every minter is trusting the developer to actually eventually publish the corresponding hash to this uh, corresponding file to this metadata hash. But when they do afterwards, then they have a clean slate and basically have proven, um, yes, I didn't change anything. So in the case of the Punkscapes, on deployment of the smart contract, I put the hash of a provenance file that has all tokens in it and their metadata assignment and the token ID. And if you go through the code, there's no way that I could have changed that. And that has been in it since yeah, the project was deployed before the, the sale started. And now anybody can, can go back and check their NFTs and go to the provenance file and look at the, NFT, the metadata there and make sure that they match up and are the same. And then, so with that, I have proven that I didn't rearrange the tokens. And that was, for example, the one very... Um, a well-known project was the Mechaverse, right? And that was a big thing that they were accused of to have, have been doing. So because they didn't do any of that, uh, they didn't provide like a content hash of the entire collection beforehand. And then um, people accused them of, of 
of doing that or the developers of of having insider knowledge and moving stuff around and yeah wow that's uh, so many like an onion no you keep peeling different yes. layers <laughs> yeah sorry that i rambled on for so long in this no no that <laughs> got me even more excited so round three <laughs> would have to come up <laughs> on exploits no just joking um when a founder means a project then does he from this contract perspective he's just another person minting tokens unless there's something specified in the contract also depending on the smart contract so for me yes there was no what many projects do and i i don't really have a strong opinion about that there's many different ways to go about it uh, what many projects do is they reserve a certain percentage of tokens for the team and it could be specific tokens as well it could be specific tokens and there's again of course that opens the door to to scam people but there's also ways to go around it so a nice example i think is the tom sachs rocket factory also a, a, a well known project um basically these it's a very cool nft project tom sachs this uh, modern artist created uh, sets of rocket pieces that you can put together so you have the base of the rocket and then the 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 main shaft what do you call it i don't know and then the tip of the rocket and um and you had these three separate items and you can put them together and assemble a final rocket anyways what they also had for the team if i remember correctly 30% yes 30% of all rocket parts they reserved for the team and what they said beforehand is that they the tokens that they reserved for themselves have the exact same rarity distribution within them as all the other tokens that are uh, uh, available to the public and you can go and prove that on chain that they didn't lie and that that's actually the case that's a reasonable way to go about it if you want to reserve specific uh, token IDs with a certain rarity distribution for for the team which is i guess in a way nice because as the team you can can be sure that you also have some rare tokens and in my case there was no way like uh, i i knew i actually did mint a rare i think a unicorn with a like a toxic river and that was completely by chance uh, i guess if i only minted really rare ones that would would have been weird uh, <laughs> yeah So the reveal when we say there's a reveal happening and sometimes or many times the reveal is delayed because there's kind of a rush what's happening in the background why is there such a rush to get things in line with the example of the one day punks again like the first collection that I did for that one back then I thought like the most trustless way for me to do this is I as I mentioned I set the content hash during deployment it's right there even before the sale starts and i immediately publish all tokens and i felt comfortable doing that because i had this token randomization which makes it really hard and economically unviable right now with today's gas and a project that is basically uh, not worth a lot compared to something like the mebits where the exploit makes sense to spend thousands of dollars in gas to find the rare token um i felt comfortable to just publish the entire collection in that case it's instantly available so you mint it you go to open sea and a minute later it's there with the and and many other projects uh, and the punkscapes included there's a delay because of what i mentioned previously that you want to prevent anybody from knowing which tokens are rare being able to to snipe them i mean the gap sometimes is just a few minutes after sell out they publish the metadata sometimes it takes hours for example if you have very large files and you start up i mean you want to start uploading to ipfs only after the sell out sometimes it just 
I mean, just take six hours to upload all the files to IPFS. And you don't want to start that process before sellout because as soon as stuff is uploaded, it's publicly available. So that explains the, the delay. And as soon as that's online, then OpenSea and other platforms, they can, or like ourselves, how we just uh, did in the beginning, can go through either scan and find the token ID and find the metadata file URL and, and check check the token and parse it and display it. Okay. And so when when the reveal happens, then people start, first of all, they start sniping in the sense that they want to make sure they know the rarity before everyone else. So there are specific tools that read everything and generate an, an official ranking. So I guess that's pretty straightforward. No, it's just software that reads the metadata and makes a ranking. There's a delta delay between OpenSea having the metadata parsed and displaying it, for example, and uh, the metadata actually being available. So there is tools that people create to, as soon as the metadata is available, go in immediately, parse all the entire collection, run through each metadata file, compare all the traits and find the rare tokens as fast as possible before anybody else knows which tokens are rare. Then go to OpenSea or any other secondary platform. Um, OpenSea is the biggest one, obviously. Um, and uh, uh, starting to buy from, from people that are unsuspecting and don't know that they have a rare token, buy the tokens from them. So this is more taking advantage of the disparity yes. and knowledge between people more than any technical exploit. And one thing that is, um, and that I, I myself, I haven't really found a really go a good solution for, is also another way the dev team can really exploit this because even before the metadata is published, but it's already sold out, Often what you see with these projects is that there's a lot of trading right after sellout, people just buying in, et cetera. So what they can do, because they know all the rare tokens, the team knows, I knew um, what we can do. And I could have, I, I, I mean, people just have to believe me that I didn't do it on secondary wallets and stuff. Yeah, You can only say, oh, 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 yeah, I, I can't even prove it. I, I could have other wallets and uh, started to buy token IDs that were an offer on OpenSea that were rare. And yeah, that, I think that's really problematic. One idea that I had while working on it was to basically implement a transfer lock. So nobody could sell or trade or transfer any tokens until the metadata is revealed. And to basically only after that switch the button and have all the rarity stats available to everybody and then it's kind of a fair trading game. But I think the user experience of doing something like that, people expecting to be able to transfer, uh, could also lead but to problems. On the other so, hand, yeah. we could say that those who are flipping just after mint kind of deserve it, no, sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. <in a laughs> way, if you're yeah. buying and you're just buying for flipping and somebody comes in with better knowledge. And buy but it's still, token. I think it, it's it's really problematic that the developer teams can can uh, uh, they have the true insider knowledge and they can go and snipe these rare tokens. If not during mint, they can do it before reveal on secondary. Yeah, that's 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 something that you have to be very careful about. And even now, working for example on the animations, we want to attach these to like basically have people access give people access to the animations that we're working on for the punkscapes um, that currently own. Their punkscape uh, already, yeah. So it's just an 
unlocked uh, secondary feature, if you will. We as a developer team, we're working on these animations and we could potentially make some traits really cool with the animations and some less cool, uh, hence potentially impacting future value. We know what the animation looks like. Nobody else knows. And all these things, yeah, I think this insider knowledge stuff is uh, what we have to be as a community, very conscious and careful. Yeah, have a, as clean a slate as possible, basically. Mm. Um, so two questions based on this. When we say that a project has an official ranking, they work typically with uh, rarity tools or others. What's happening at that stage where, because as we discussed earlier, there are many tools to kind of generate the rarity ranking. When there's an official one, what's happening behind the scenes? I mean, there's different algorithms. There's no like, rarity is a weird concept, right? There's different ways to calculate it. There is one most common way, but there's arguments why it's not really good. The easiest way to calculate rarity, and I think that's also the method, for example, that these tools that try to ex uh, exploit the delta between open C reveal and, and the metadata actually being available, uh, use is basically they go through the entire set of metadata files and count how many of which trait and attribute are in the in the set. So they know, okay, if you go through the punkscapes, oh, there's only 200 cyber trucks, but there is every token has an atmosphere, for example, right? Or there's one and a half thousand cities, but only 50 uh, block trees, for example. So you can find out which ones are more seldom. And then especially you basically, you for example, you multiply the rarities of all the attributes within your NFT. So there's multiple traits and you put them together. Um, and that defines the sort of the rarity of that particular token. And then there's ways to like normalize and improve the statistic. But what I mean, improving the statistic is weird. Like I, I, it's there's different so my, ways so to, my to understanding, calculate it. And, yeah. yeah. So based on what you just said, my understanding is that that's the main method. And then there's the two main options are trait normalization and trait count, which you can switch on or off for most projects. And that's also a prediction game to predict what the eventual official ranking will use there. So what what, what is this? The trait count, trait normalization? So the actual, the, the trait count is basically what I just said, the, we have 50 block trees out of a thousand. So you can calculate a score there, which is uh, 50 of a thousand is much rarer, higher score multiplied by money. Uh, I have the actual formula lying around somewhere, but yeah, so uh, the less items you have in the entire set, the rarer it is. And then you take all these scores for every item, you multiply them. Trade normalization trade uh, takes into account how many of the trade type are available and puts that into the calculation as well. So in the set, Punkscapes, for example, it has um, every single token has an atmosphere, but not every single token has a tree. And it takes that into account when calculating the rarity uh, and makes the trees in that sense less significant uh, compared to other. So um, if you don't do the trait normalization, you'll have the rarest, I think, trait uh, group in the Punkscape set is animals. And um, if you don't do normalization, then all the animals are very rare by definition. And if you do trade norm normalization, um, it spreads that out more equally and looks at the at how yeah normalizes that across the entire set of traits. 
Okay, so Rarity has nothing to do really with what goes on the blockchain. It's just an interpretation of the metadata. Metadata is an interpretation of them. I mean, if you have uh, all the token, all the all the data on chain, which is also we haven't discussed that, but that's also possible. Um, you store the entire metadata um, right on chain and generate this JSON blob basically on chain. Um, there's projects that that do that. Uh, then, then you have it directly on on chain, yeah. But in most cases, it's not. And so, with Rarity, I think I, I actually put a few little uh, tidbits in in the set uh, that basically destroy the notion of Rarity, at least in how it's normally being calculated. Which is some trees, for example, they are the same trees, but some of them have uh, autumn leaves, basically, and some are green. It's the same tree, but at different times or the cars sometimes point this way or that way, or houses um, have the lights switched on or off. Uh, thing, or there's a, a tree that sometimes um, it has uh, fruit and sometimes it doesn't. So that basically, because it's not part of, it's only part of the image, it's not part of the metadata traits. So the, all the rarity tools, they don't see it. That alone basically destroys for the punkscapes the notion of, of rarity and makes it much more about what do I identify with and uh, what do I like? Or it, it maybe it, it creates this little game for people to, to find these hidden traits. Um, in the beginning, I know, I remember that was a thing that people got really excited about to, to find these, oh, wow, the, there's a tree that has apples. Let's find all the apple trees. But nobody saw them in the rarity tools, basically. Yeah, yeah I've seen other projects do that nowadays. Um, yeah. Nowadays, as if this happened a long time ago. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Like the the latest one was the party degenerates where some characters had a bracelet, but it it wouldn't show up with the rarity, and that would give you VIP access to, oh, to the club or something like that. Nice, nice, but you could only see it on OpenSea, looking at the images. At the image, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think things little things like that um, and make it not entirely based on rarity and like this weird rarity trading game is is cool because in the end it should be about about art uh, as well not only these rarity traits mm. <laughs> yeah and sometimes the rarity doesn't really match with the art like you have rare items that don't look good yes i think it's important for i it's really difficult for projects to do well when the rare items aren't the desirable ones. What you want is the desire, like aesthetically desirable ones to, to match also the rarity of them. One interesting, maybe uh, one apart from the actual traits within an NFT, a big factor of rarity is, for example, also the trait count. So with the punkscapes, there is like 11, I think, scapes that only have two traits the atmosphere and maybe clouds uh, or celestial or a sky or something. And those are then, uh, because there's only 11 that only have two traits, that makes them very rare by definition, for example. So that's something that you would have defined beforehand? Yes. Yeah. And what does that actually mean? If you see the image, how are the rest of the features and the image created then if they're not in the traits? Oh, you mean with the alterations that are not uh, in the metadata? Uh, you said there are some scapes that only have two traits. How does the image get generated? Because usually you can look at the traits and kind of yeah. know what to expect in the image. Yeah, So yeah, how... it's the same thing. It's the same process, basically. So um, for all of you, so every scape has uh, an atmosphere, for example, and that's the main, like the background uh, color and gradient. And then, for example, I have this trait type called sky, 
which is basically different kinds of um, sort of uh, stripes that go across the scape. And uh, then in the metadata, it would just have these two types. So atmosphere, dark night, sky, red stripes, for example. And then those two together would define also the image. So the image would be this um, dark night with the red stripes. So, so that could or could not contain a police car, for example? Yes. Even if it doesn't contain any rare traits per se, it's still a very rare item because it only contains so few Because of its uniqueness then. Yeah. 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 It's very unique in that way. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, I read early on in the project that there was talk about kind of pushing the ERC721 protocol to kind of expand on it. I don't know what it was exactly about. I, I also know that there's a date assigned right. to each to each scape. So maybe we can yes. talk about th these two things. Sure. So the date was actually um, a wonderful idea while I was working on the scapes by a community member. So in the time between when I launched the Punkscapes and uh, the One Day Punks and, and then the act and working on the Punkscapes, we already had the community going and I was discussing progress with people, etc. Um, and one community member in particular was very active at the time. Um, and he's also part of the core team, Hearsay. A very cool guy. He's a, like, actually, a, he's a lawyer. And he's doing uh, all kinds of like he's a very well known. Uh, not he has deep knowledge in like crypto law, etc. Um, and he's also now part of the core team. But back then he wasn't. He was just part of the community. And he suggested to me to add um, traits in the metadata that you cannot see in the image, um, but that then people could reinterpret in different ways. And uh, one of the ideas. Uh, that he gave me was to add uh, dates to them. And I loved the idea. I didn't really know what to do with it. But uh, some point later, I, I thought of doing like this, the scapes having every day across the next uh, 10,000 days of uh, being like one scape and then doing a gallery that every day displays the, the day's uh, scape. And when I like knew what to do with it, I, I, I added it. And I think it's a great addition to... Uh, to the punkscapes, yeah. So you could, for example, order the entire set, uh, not by token ID, but by the date and have a big timeline. And that's actually one thing that we're going to have, yeah. So on the website, you can go through the entire set um, based on on the, the date, yeah. And then and that creates the, a story. It introduces well. something further beyond rarity by, for example, exactly. somebody wanting to buy the punkscape on his birthday, the, the, where the date yes. is his birthday. Yes, yes, yes. And I think like I have some stuff planned for the gallery that will make the date much more significant even than, than that, I think. <laughs> so that's exciting. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is interesting because we have multiple of these. And when the community started to put them together, I think we touched on it briefly in the last episode, these merges, right? That's also, again, reinterpretation of rarity because for any particular scape, there's only so many other escapes that are compatible to form perfect merges. And those are most often not very rare, but they become very important to you because they're rare to you to be able to merge it with your escape. So, so that's also a really cool one, I think. And with a builder tool that, that, that we're releasing soon, I think they, uh, the, it works best with very clean escapes. So just a mountain scene, for example, with nothing on it. And then you can add all your cryptodes and vampires and whatever yourself. 
uh, suddenly these very clean scapes become desirable more so than the scapes with, I don't know, cars on them, for example. And yeah, so there's many different ways to like uh, mess with rarity and <laughs> I enjoy it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, what the, the pushing the protocol part, was it related to the date or was it something pushing else? the protocol um that was uh, i think uh, r related to compatibility across projects so i think especially with pixel art that was the initial um kind of thing where we're going there with pixel art it has a pixel density by definition right so the crypto punks are 24 by 24 pixels even if you have an image that is actually 600 by 600 pixels the actual the pixel density of the painting, so to say, is only 24 by 24 pixels. So just just because I've never really understood about the punkscapes, the, the size you mentioned is very small, right? But the image we see is big. It's big. It's scaled up. Is yeah. it just enlarged automatically? How does it work? Yes. There's different algorithms you can use to, to scale uh, images. And often as uh, they just blur the image if you scale it up. And that works well for, for like normal photos. Uh, it's good to like blur a little of the hard lines, but for pixel art, you want to maintain the sharp edges, right? So there's uh, an algorithm called uh, nearest neighbor. And for every pixel, it just like, takes the, the nearest neighbor of that pixel and uh, makes it really large. So then it maintains the sharp edges. And the only reason I didn't um, add the actual pixel, the actual sized punkscapes in the in the in the contract because OpenSea, for example, they don't display it correctly if it's so tiny. So you have to make it large for people to be able to uh, click click on it and see it uh, on on their big screens, etc. But uh, finally, on on our website, all the punkscapes that you see, even if they're big, the actual image is only 24 by 72 pixels. Which That's is how you design very on, very small. on your iPad. Yes. In these yes. Pixels. Yeah. And so, so the yeah the, yeah the image on OpenSea though what in the, in the future if we're using much more higher resolutions what happens then could you replace that image that we saw in IPFS or as long as the contract is uh, not frozen I could technically update the image but I would guess that I mean there's a couple things that um, I I have planned to um, add to the metadata um, before I freeze it but. When that's done, I want to freeze the, the metadata and then that's it. And people can use various algorithms, I guess, to, to enlarge them or maybe OpenSea fixes how they scale up images in the future. So, yeah, yeah. But then so it would it be, be frozen. 20, 30 years down the line, we'll all be looking at tiny images. <laughs> it could be, yeah. <laughs> saying... <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's just, also around there is a social consensus so for example the crypto punks there is no larva labs didn't provide the single punk images to anybody what they had in the smart contract i mean they have on their on their website but what is in the smart contract is just the entire image file that contains all the punks yeah and but now OpenSea, they themselves for example created a custom metadata logic for the crypto punks to display the the single punk images for every token. So in the future, one could do things like that. And it's just social consensus around, yes, we all agree that this is the actual punkscape or, yeah. And, and coming back to the animations and the sound that you're uh, 
adding to the punkscapes. How would ownership of those work? Would it be an airdrop? Would it be just something on the website itself? Yeah, I'm not very, I think with, with these things, it would be not very smart to do an, an airdrop of a separate token because what happens is you have a punkscape and an animation that is the punkscape animated it doesn't make sense for that to be separate tokens that you can uh, that you can sell the animation to another person or transfer it to another person um, and then those two are separated it, that doesn't make sense so and that's also true i think for a little bit less so but also for for the sound they're all based on exactly the tr the punkscape traits and they're reusing the sound for every trait attribute for every other punkscape that has this particular trait um, so I think for these items, it's unreasonable to release them as another NFT, especially in the context of how, how much the gas is and so on and so forth also. So no, I'm not planning to do these as airdrops. Uh, There's basically just unlockable content for people to, when they own the Punkscape, they also have access to the, the, these other things. My current thinking is there's these different elements that you can add in the token metadata besides the image. And one is, in fact, animation URL that you can use to display an animation for, for the token. So that's just an, uh, like an addition to the, uh, to the token metadata. It's not changing the image. It's not removing anything from the, from, the, from the token. It's just additional. So I think that's a really good way to, to go about it and unlock that basically for, for people to enjoy if they want to. They can also just ignore it. <laughs> yeah, no, I like the idea of not just being dependent on OpenSea for everything, right? Just being more participative in the in the Discord to create stuff and then going to the project's website to create the banners, to fetch your animations. I mean, we have to do a better job at um, I think many people that own a Punkscape, they have no idea uh, that, yeah. that these things that are being worked us. on and exist. Yeah. Um, but So we have to do uh, find better ways to communicate these things to, to people. But yeah, working on that as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I had some other questions, but it would take it too long. I already had some complaints in the... <laughs> in the last one that we Discord. went to. Yes, yes. <laughs> the Zoomer uh, time span. Isn't as long as mine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I actually enjoy longer episodes, but yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, both have their place, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's. I think if you don't have anything important that we missed out, we can wrap it up here. I think just sure, let's no. recap yeah. on what you have in store right now, as in what's in development. Just for those who have not been very updated with what's happening. Right. I mean, again, uh, the, the, what I mentioned last time, there's the animations that our team member Hearsay is working on <clears throat> and the builder tool that lets you, like we already have more than 10 other projects that are compatible with the Punkscapes and you can add them on top. Those are the big ones that are coming. And then the gallery is starting because the first dates for the Punkscapes is starting on in, in the beginning of February. So yeah, that's going to start then. And until then, yeah, we'll have to sort out the gallery. Yeah, those are the big next steps. And uh, we w shouldn't miss out on what's already being created, which is the, what do you call it, the extender for the... Um, the merger, yes. The merger, yes. yeah. And there's actually a big update coming for that as well, which is um, right now you can only merge scapes that fit together perfectly. 
And we are working on these trade-based fades, basically, that lets you merge any Punkscape with any other Punkscape. Um, and I think that's going to really elevate the storytelling capability. So uh, you can have, for example, scape that has that's on Earth, um, a, a mountain scape, and merge it with um, a crater scape on Mars, and they will flow into each other, and it will look like a terraformed Mars, for example. Mm, so yeah, awesome. I think yeah, that'll be cool. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. One thing I love about NFTs is how deep you can go. Even just picking any random project, you get all these ideas of what you could do. What you children's yes. coloring books, stories, oh, expeditions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's really nice. so many things to explore. Yes, hundred percent. Cool. Thank you again um, for having me. Yeah, again. thanks to you. Uh, <laughs> I, you don't really have to thank me today. I didn't know much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, see, see you soon. See you soon. Yeah, see you. All the best. All right. So that's a wrap with uh, Jalil. I hope this episode was as interesting for you as it was for me. I think, as I said in the beginning, that this is very important for all investors, traders, anyone involved with NFTs. You need to know some basic technical things in order not to get rugged, not to get hacked, not to get scammed, and also to make the right choices when buying. As we know, the space is really built at the moment, at least on speculation. So the prices can be all over the place. There's lots of scams happening. Value is very, very relative. So you need to really make sure that you know what you're doing instead of just FOMOing into the next project without doing your due diligence. And I think knowing these basic technical things that we discussed with Jalil today can help you out. So hope you enjoyed the episode. You can always leave feedback for me. Podcast at mastermind.fm is the email and you can also reach out on Twitter, must at mastermind.fm. And yeah, that's all from me today. Hope you have a great week and we'll be back next week.